Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Triangulation is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Triangulation, Episode 9, recorded March 30th, 2011. Ray Kurzweil. So Ray Kurzweil is a a legend, really, uh, in the... uh, artificial intelligence business uh, he's done so much uh, uh, including uh, you know he's the transhumanist movement he's um, a scientist he's a thinker um, and he says uh, he wants to live long enough to live forever and I think we've got him on the line here hi Ray oh oh we we have him on the line but we don't no have him audio. Turned I don't hear audio you can get. I think it's a your end. Uh, okay. Great there, to there be you with go. you. Hey, hi Ray. It's great okay. to see you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, you got. Be with a, you virtually. You got a, a nice studio there. Can you hear me? You've got an interesting studio there. Also, <laughs> interesting is the word. <laughs> um, are you Are you at MIT? Where are you? I'm at my uh, office. Uh, is actually a. Uh, projection system i can project three-dimensionally to venues i uh so i give about 20 speeches a year using this 3d virtual projection system so wow as i move around the audience sees their local background behind me so and that- i look 3d and i'm life-size i can establish eye contact so this what we what we're doing now is just conventional video conferencing yeah, which Skype. is pretty cool but old-fashioned uh, you're very, yeah. you're very kind. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it ain't 3D, that's Skype. for sure. Skype is that is very cool. Is that 3D thing similar to what people would have seen on CNN when they had Will I Am on the election a few years back, or is it a different system? It's a different system uh, that allowed you. That was full body. Uh, this system, you see pretty much what you're seeing now. Uh, looks like I'm standing at a at a podium. Okay. Uh, and at the venue, they see a podium, and it looks like I'm standing behind it. It's called Teleportech. I'm actually the only speaker in the world who has his own system. Oh, that's interesting. So you, it's not it's something you invented? No. We have to get one of those. Yeah, we're going to have to put one in the new studio. I'd like, <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to have a Teleportech in our studio. You wouldn't have to leave the house. So, uh, how, you know, one of the challenges talking to you, Ray, is to characterize, uh, to give you a title. Uh, well, I, I call myself uh, inventor, author, futurist. That's good. Inventor, author, futurist. And that's that's kind of the order in which things happened. I decided I'd be an inventor when I was five. Uh-huh. And so I sort of retired. People you know, my age start talking about retirement. And uh, my first thought is I'm never going to retire. But my second thought is I actually did retire when I was five years old. Because <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing what I love to do. Uh, but I quickly realized that to be successful, timing was critical. I mean, Larry Page and Sergey Brin had a great idea about reverse engineering the links on the internet to create a better search engine, but they did it at exactly the right time. And so realizing this about 30 years ago, I began to collect a lot of data, being an engineer. I thought I would try to come up with something data-driven. And I started with the common wisdom that you can't predict the future. And discovered that if you measure the underlying properties of information technology, the classic classical example is MIPS per dollar, but there's a hundred other measurements like this, and not just in computers, also in biological technologies like genetic sequencing, the amount of data, the cost per base pair, brain data, spatial resolution of brain scanning. I could mention a lot of different things, nodes on the internet, bits we move around on the internet, bits we move around wirelessly. They follow remarkably predictable trajectories and those and those predictable trajectories are exponential not linear and our intuition is not exponential but linear so people's expectations of the future are the things that are going to continue at the current pace so for example i i predicted that the general project would be finished on time in 15 years seven and a half years into this 15-year project one percent of it had been done so critics said, well, we told you this wasn't going to work. Here you did 1% in seven years. It's going to take 
700 years. And that's a very good linear analysis, but in fact was done seven years later because it was doubling every year and 1% is only seven doublings from 100%. And there's many phenomena like that. I mean, in the class, I saw computing had grown in this exponential manner completely smoothly and predictably since the 1890 census and was not affected by little things that happened in the 20th century, like World War One, World War Two, the Cold War, the Great Depression. It's continued for those 30 years. So I'm not just noticing this now and overfitting the past data. I've been making these forward-looking predictions for 30 years. This is uh, from the chart from the singularity is near the, the uh, evolution of computer power and cost. Very linear. Uh, well, that's linear on a, on an algorithm, on a logarithmic scale. On a logarithmic scale, scale yeah, right. which is exponential. So it's actually a, a, a hockey stick, really. And it's actually a curve on an exponential because actually the rate of exponential growth has been growing exponentially. But, you know, this is a billion dollars more powerful per dollar than the computer I used as a student. And we'll do it again in 25 years. And yeah. we're shrinking the technology. It's 100,000 times smaller than that computer that I used as a student. Uh, 25 years, this will be the size of a blood cell and more powerful. So yeah, I think a lot of people get hung up when they start thinking about these things, saying, but how can we continue to do this? How how can you prove that, that this is going to continue on a logarithmic scale? How, they want to know the underlying reasons. And I, I, a lot of what I've read ignores that and says, we're looking at the trends. We're not looking at the whys. Uh, is, is it safe to do that, to say, you know, to, to make that analysis? Well, that's really what the whole book, The Singularity is Near, is about, is to make that case. And uh, every time one paradigm has run out of steam, we've gone to another paradigm. It creates research pressure to create the next paradigm. Uh, Moore's Law, the shrinking of component sizes on an integrated circuit, was not the first paradigm to bring exponential growth to computing. It's the fifth. They were shrinking vacuum tubes in the 1950s. Interesting. Uh, 1952, CBS predicted the election of Eisenhower with a vacuum tube-based computer. And then every year they were making the vacuum tubes smaller and smaller. I have a museum. We have a computer with little vacuum tubes. That finally hit a wall. We got to a point where they couldn't do that anymore and keep the vacuum. And that was the end of the shrinking of vacuum tubes. It was not the end of the exponential growth of computing. And then went to the fourth paradigm, transistors. And then to the fifth paradigm, which is Moore's Law and Chips. And there's been regular predictions, oh, that's going to come to an end. Right, we'll hit a molecular about. limit or something like that. Well, we're going to get to a limit. Uh, until, uh, well, Gordon Moore originally said 20, 2002 until now since 2022. By that time, the key features will be 4 nanometers, which is about 20 carbon atoms, and we won't be able to shrink them anymore. But, you know, we do live in a three-dimensional world. Chips are flat. They have multiple layers of material, but it's generally one layer of circuitry. We've taken a baby step in the third dimension with multi-layer chips, but uh, three-dimensional molecular computing will allow us to actually compute in three dimensions, which is what our brain does, even though it uses a very slow type of circuitry. And if you do the analysis, based on what we've actually demonstrated at a small scale, molecular computing will enable these trends to go well into the late 21st century. But by that time, computers will be trillions if not trillions of trillions of times more powerful than human brains. So, what do you think of uh, Jeff Hawkins' uh, Numenta and his attempt to kind of create a new kind of chip that simulates how the, the par massively parallel brain? Well, I think Hawkins uh, has a very uh, good insight as to the uniformity of the neocortex. The, the neocortex is this little region of the brain uh, that does something called thinking, which you're probably familiar with. And <laughs> some of us some are. Of us are. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, and remarkably, all the thinking we do uses a, a common paradigm. There's a little pattern recognizer that recognizes patterns. And that pattern might be a certain uh, sequence of sounds, might be a certain sequence of shapes. So there's a bunch of, of recognizers that recognize a capital A. Well, it's, uh, actually, the crossbar in the capital A. And those recognizers fire when they see, ah, crossbar, and they're happy and fire and send that signal up to another set of recognizers. When that recognizer gets a bunch of signals, it says, ah, capital A, and it sends that up, and uh, then it gets a bunch of signals from other recognizers and says, ah, the word apple, and so on. Uh, at the very high level, highest level of this conceptual hierarchy in the neocortex, there's recognizers that recognize things like humor 
and irony. And you might think that those are much more complicated, but actually they're the same. They, they just sit at the top end of this, of this hierarchy. There was an incident or experiment where they were doing open brain surgery with this girl, which you can do because there's no pain receptors in the brain. And whenever they triggered a particular spot, this girl would start to laugh, and they assumed, hmm. well, they must be triggering some automatic laugh reflex. But actually, they discovered, no, they're actually triggering a point in her neocortex where she perceives humor. And she found everything hilarious <laughs> whenever they triggered this oh, spot. Like, you guys are so funny standing there, would be a <laughs> typical comment. So Hawking's had this thesis, which he's uh, developed uh, further over the years, uh, building on this recognition that there's tremendous uniformity throughout the entire neocortex. It's a flat structure that sits outside the brain. It's folded up to increase the surface area and it has about a billion of these recognizers. And we actually have a pretty good idea of how they work. Conceptually, Watson, the recent you know, Jeffrey Plank computer, uses some biologically inspired paradigms that are really inspired by what we know about the type of recognition of patterns that are done in the neocortex. And, and interestingly, uh, the neocortex can recognize complex three-dimensional forms, and you probably think that those are somehow three-dimensional recognizers, but actually they're all linear sequences of events. And that's how, and so they're basically Lisp statements. Uh, hmm. So if you remember back in the 80s, yeah. people were saying Lisp really represents the way the human brain thinks, and everybody thought that was hype, and because these companies actually didn't do that well, but it actually turns out to be true that each of these billion little pattern recognizers basically learns one list statement, one list hmm. of, uh, of events uh, or other patterns. So this structure enables us to do what is unique among humans. I mean, other mammals have one, but they're not big enough to really do it at human levels. We can take a whole bunch of ideas and call that an idea and give it a symbol and then use that symbol with other symbols representing other ideas and create another idea and give that a symbol and then use that in another set of ideas and this whole hierarchy we call knowledge and that's was one of the enabling factors that allowed us to to create tools the other one is this humble appendage here so that i can really grasp things and so my neocortex says wow you know i could take that branch and i could kind of strip it down and make a point and then I could reach a higher branch with it and I could create this tool. Well, I then had actually an appendage that allowed me to carry that out. And I created tools. And then we used our tools to create the next tools. And that's actually why uh, the power, particularly is measured in terms of their information content. At least that gives us a way of measuring them, sort of like MIPS per dollar or bits of communication in the world. Uh, we always use the latest tools to create the next ones, and that's why they grow exponentially in power. So I have a whole theoretical analysis in the book. I have a mathematical derivation. But really, the, the core of the case is the empirical case. And I give example after example of all kinds of different trends in communications, in, in brain reverse engineering, in, bi in biology, in many other areas showing that if you can measure the underlying information properties of a technology, it follows these remarkably smooth exponential trajectories. And it does go through from paradigm to paradigm. Uh, so people say, well, there must be some you know, ultimate limit. Is Let's there a sixth six paradigm? Yeah, what's next? Well, the sixth paradigm is three-dimensional molecular computing. And so what's the limit of that? And I actually worked that out in the book. And there is a limit, but it's not very limiting. You can then get into speculation of things like beyond nanocomputing, femtocomputing, pico-computing, mm. computing with components of atoms. I don't actually go there. And actually, Eric Drexler, who's the founder of nanotechnology, uh, is skeptical about femtocomputing. You don't have to go there. Just with nanocomputing, all the scenarios in my book become feasible. We'll be able to create a two-pound you know, computer the size of a laptop that is trillions of times more powerful than the human brain, just with the sixth paradigm. And there's an overriding principle at work, too, that we don't have to know what those advances are any more than the folks who worked on the first vacuum tubes understood three-dimensional molecular computing. It, it's, it will be discovered. It's, it sort of seems like it's uh, an inertia, in a way. It's remarkable how predictable this is, because... 
you know, what we're measuring is creativity, innovation, competition, free enterprise. You would think that that would be very unpredictable. Indeed, it is unpredictable at a project-by-project project level. So it was clear that search engines were coming, you know, 15 years ago. It wasn't clear which one of the 20 or 30 projects uh, that were actually known, and there were many more sort of laboring in garages that were unknown, uh, would prevail. Uh, it's, it's unpredictable which scientists, which project, which idea, which uh, platform will, will prevail in the marketplace. But the overall results are follow these remarkably predictable trajectories, and people say, well, you know, they must, must be disrupted by war, depressions, the Great Recessions. But no, they weren't disrupted in the recent recession or the Great Depression or, or the two world wars or the Cold War or any of that. Uh, it's a remarkably smooth, inexorable progression. So, so then people say, well, gee, if it's going to happen anyway, why don't we just all sit back and relax and <laughs> let it happen? And then, of course, then it wouldn't happen. Right. right. But, but I but, think uh, we can count on people don't being... Work that way, yeah. yeah. Exactly. People are motivated to right. create new breakthroughs and new knowledge. It's a little bit like thermodynamics. I mean, thermodynamics, if you look at the mathematics models, each particle is following a random walk. I can't tell where this molecule will be 10 seconds from now. Nonetheless, the overall properties of the gas are highly predictable to a high level of precision according to the laws. They are considered laws. Even though they are an emergent property of random behavior, uh, and it's the same thing here. Each project's unpredictable. The overall result, if you can measure it, and you know, with information technology, there are many such measures available, it follows a, a, an exponential trajectory. And it's important to point out that it's not uh, intuitive. Uh, the reason that we can anticipate the future, the reason we are intelligent, is that it has a survival benefit. You know, I'm walking through the savannah, and I see this animal coming at me, and I can make a linear prediction where it's going to be and where I shouldn't be. And that worked fine, and it got hardwired in our brains. Uh, and so our intuition, even among sophisticated scientists, uh, is linear. And even if someone's an expert in their field, they haven't really studied this issue of technological progression. So uh, invariably, when I get into debate, uh, it's the underlying issue, even if my critic doesn't realize it, is this difference in perspective of linear versus exponential. People say, oh, well, Kurzweil doesn't understand the complexity of the human brain. That's not true. I've studied this for 50 years. I have a very good appreciation of what the level of complexity is. It's that they don't appreciate the tremendous power of exponential growth. You know, 30 steps linearly gets you to 30, 30 steps exponentially gets you to a billion. Uh, that's why this is a billion times more powerful, literally, per dollar in terms of MIPS, in terms of bits, memory, in terms of bits of communication, uh, compared to when I was a student. And and we'll, uh, we'll do it again in 25 years. So even though our brain isn't very good at perceiving this, I think you make a really strong case in, in this book, The uh, Singularity is Near, that uh, we are about to approach... There's, there's the paperback. I have the hardcover. They were about to approach the, uh, the singularity. Wait, can you define the singularity for us? What, what, what are you talking about when you say the singularity is near? Well, singularity as it's used, and uh, it's, it was first used in this sense by Werner Vinge although it was used in passing, just in a sentence by John von Neumann uh, originally, where he's, he noticed this phenomena, that things are getting faster and faster and growing exponentially, and he said, this is going to reach a singularity. Uh, he just said that in passing. Werner Vinge developed the term more than the way we're using it, and then I've uh, developed my thesis of the law of accelerating returns and examined what this will mean. Uh, and we're really borrowing a metaphor from physics, which in turn actually borrowed this metaphor from mathematics. In mathematics, it's where the model breaks down. Uh, if you divide, uh, let's say, a constant, one, by x, as x approaches zero, that function approaches infinity. But actually, strictly speaking, in the axioms of real numbers, there's no infinity. So we actually say at when uh, 1 over x and x becomes 0, it's undefined. The model just breaks down. Same thing happens in physics. In physics, in theory, 
at the center of a black hole, there's an infinite level of mass and energy, but actually quantum mechanics doesn't allow a literally infinite level. So it just becomes vast and unmeasurable and beyond an event horizon that's around the, the singularity in physics, you really can't see very well because any information that goes in it becomes trapped inside the black Stuck. hole. And, the, and then, of course, the, you know, uh, recently Hawking admitted, actually, you can, with difficulty, see inside a black hole because events outside the black hole are quantum encrypted with events inside the black hole. And so, in theory, there's a way to see inside it, but not very easily. It's very, so we're borrowing this, this metaphor now for this future historical event where things become so different so transformed that it's hard to see beyond the event horizon. The singularity is this event horizon. And uh, according to my calculations, by 2029, we will achieve parity in terms of machine intelligence and human intelligence. That's 18 years. Uh, yeah, that actually will, uh, at that point, computers will be able to uh, combine that subtlety and suppleness of human pattern recognition with ways in which computers are already superior, they can read billions of documents. I mean, consider Watson, yeah. the recent Jeopardy. Uh, I mean, it it had a higher score than the two best human players combined. Yet, and people have pointed this out, and I agree, its ability to understand human language was not quite up to those humans because it made some pretty stupid mistakes. But it actually does have you know, a fairly good ability to understand human language, which is something that people thought would never happen. It could understand that something was a metaphor, that something was a joke, that something was a pun. And Do you think, you, you mentioned in your blog post that it maybe had a sense of humor. You think that that's fair? Well, it was not programmed to have a sense of humor. That actually might have helped it with its bedside uh, <laughs> manner. Uh, it wasn't very gracious. It when it, an when inadvertent it won, but, sense of humor, I guess. Uh yeah, it did. It did have an inadvertent uh, sense of humor in one case. Uh, but but the point I was going to make that even though its level of understanding was somewhat below the humans, it com it was able to win anyway, because whatever level it had, it was able to read and understand at at that level all of Wikipedia, right. other encyclopedias, right. hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. By the way, its natural language ability was not just applied to the query, but to these hundreds of thousands of pages of stuff. Now, you and I could read Wikipedia. I think that's actually feasible. We wouldn't remember it. We don't have that kind of capacity. And in a few seconds, be able to then mentally access all of this information. Watson could do that. In the future, they will be at human levels and combine it then with the tremendous capacity, at that point, reading billions of pages, ultimately everything out on the internet. And then we'll continue to get smarter. I mean, there's the whole point where they can then access their own source code and make themselves smarter. The hardware is going to continue to grow in capacity. Uh, and by the way, it's not, in my view, an alien invasion of intelligent machines to displace us and compete with us. We're going to merge with these technologies. We already have. I've it's not the, it's not the Terminator. You're not worried about the Terminator. I mean, I've merged with this, and I'd like to put it in my body. <laughs> that's, his, that's your it's, cell phone? Then <laughs> uh, I would not lo you know, lose it or, or forget it at home. Uh, it belongs in my body. That's where I will put it when it's small enough. True. Um, so we are we are already a human machine civilization. It's not out in one government lab somewhere. It's not an invasion from Mars. Uh, but anyway, we, if you follow these exponential trajectories, uh, the the non biological portion, the machine portion of our intelligence, will be a billion times greater than all of biological intelligence today among humans that's such a by 2045 and that's such a profound transformation that that qualifies to be a very singular change in human history and so we use this metaphor the by, singularity and by which you mean we cannot predict what will happen on the other side so. however i think actually we have enough intelligence to make some statements about what life will be like tell us too. <laughs> understand it by analogy well, well in many ways we'll be doing the same thing we do now i mean lots of people like yourselves are actually creating knowledge which is to say radio programs or music or mm -hmm. graphic arts mm -hmm. or science or engineering or or blog posts and uh creating some kind of knowledge which itself doubles every 13 months by some measures uh, 
That was not true 100 years ago. Most people worked in physical labor. In fact, a third of the workforce worked on farms, and a third of the workforce worked in factories. In fact, if I were a Prussian futurist in 1900, I would, I would say, okay, well, two-thirds of you work on farms and factories. That'll be 3% and 3%. In, in 100 years, in the year 2000. And everybody would go, my God, we're all going to be out of work. And, <laughs> and, and starve. I'd say, <laughs> yeah, right. I'd say, don't worry, you'll be doing Skype radio broadcasts <laughs> or designing websites. And you'll find something to do. <laughs> no one would know what I was talking about. <laughs> right. In fact, most of the employment today, these job categories didn't exist 50 years ago, let alone 100 right. years ago. And that's going to continue to be the case. We're More and more, I mean, we're going to move, continue to move up Maslow's hierarchy. More and more people on the world will have their basic needs met. There's a certain, certain portion of the population which does already. The world is, you know, th there's a, something I run into as I go around the world and share these ideas is, you know, a lot of people think things are getting worse. The go world's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, the reason for that is we're actually doing a better job of knowing what's wrong with yes. this world. Mm -hmm. yep. There's a, uh, you know, you guys uh, in the blogosphere and radio land and are letting the world know and we can see right on our palm tops a battle in Fallujah or Tripoli right. and or other problems uh, that may be disturbing, but it's a good thing because if we see problems, we, we are motivated to fix them. Uh, the reality is I have graphs which I've developed now from my presentations on things like education and wealth of nations and health and longevity, they're all very smoothly going up. We've doubled the number of years of schooling in both the developed and developing world uh, over the last 50 years. Uh, human longevity has gone from 37 in 1800 to you know, pushing 80 today, and that's going to go into high gear now that health and medicine is an information technology. Do we have any idea of how our culture will be able to adapt to the increasing acceleration we see this right now where where folks who are, are, you know, from a generation above take a little longer in most cases, not all cases, but they, in, in general, take a little longer to adapt and say, well, I don't understand Twitter. Why would I ever want to use Twitter? And it just takes a little longer to penetrate or smartphones or computers even uh, in some cases. And as as the advances get faster, the gaps between the folks who are used to one thing and another start to shorten is there any information about that kind of adaptation, that kind of cultural acceptance? Well, I mean, there's always early and late adopters, and we have a million choices. In fact, we have almost a million choices just for iPhone apps. Uh, <laughs> You're so right. This, yes. this not, some people sometimes ask, you know, well, maybe I'm going to opt out of being enhanced by this technology, and maybe I sure. don't want it, as if it were one thing. Go for I mean, it. There's going to be a million different choices. There will be nanobots that are so thoroughly tested and, and, you know, augment your immune system and protect you from a long list of diseases and aging processes. And you would be irresponsible not to do it, not to give your kids it just, just the way, say, certain childhood vaccines are considered. Well, uh, then, but there's then, a, vaccines are a good example of people sort of rebelling against this idea culturally, even though it is the responsible thing to do. Right. But, you know, very few people don't use technology. Hugo uh, de Garris has this idea of a war between an artelect war, as he puts it, between the uh, cosmos, people who enhance themselves with these technologies, with these you know, very powerful machines in the future, and those who eschew that, uh, she calls Terrans. Uh, mm. I pointed out that would be a very short war. <laughs> kind of like, kind of like a war between our military-industrial complex and the Amish. Right. Um, the fact the is Amish are scrappy, but yeah, I think I get your point. And they do use some technologies yeah. too, but uh, very few people are going to opt out completely. Very few people opt out completely today. I mean, even if they don't tweet, they're affected by all of these technologies. They probably have a cell phone. They They've got probably, a toilet. They've, they probably got indoor plumbing. Well, it sounds like you're, you say people will will adapt faster. You know, the the folks who say, "Oh, I don't want to deal with this newfangled technology," will just sort of become a, a, a minority. Uh, yeah, I mean, look at the effect it has. I mean, if you live in Libya, you're affected because right. 
Mm-hmm. Revolution was spawned by social networks. Even Facebook if you don't and, know what Twitter is, you're affected by uh, it. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. It's affecting human communication. I, I wrote in my first book, The Age of Intelligent Machines, that the Soviet Union would be swept away by the then emerging decentralized communication, which mostly with email over tele, uh, these telesat machines over phone lines and also fax machines. And people thought that was nuts. The Soviet Union, which was then going strong and was a mighty superpower, that's going to be swept away by a few teletype machines. But that's what happened. Then the in that 1991 coup against Gorbachev, the photo op and, and the cover of Time magazine was a picture of Yeltsin standing on a tank. Mm, yeah. but, the, but that was the old way of thinking. The tank had nothing to do with right. it. It was, a, it was the hackers with their clandestine network, right. of basically a social network at that time, that kept everybody in the know. And the paradigm of grabbing the central TV and radio station and the authorities keeping everybody in the dark didn't work anymore. Yeah, we saw that in Egypt. And, yeah. yeah, They even turned off the internet I, and it didn't work. It didn't work. In fact, they can't keep it off because it would completely destroy right. the economy. And even in North Korea, information is, is seeping in, but it's probably the only place in the world that really is trying to insulate the world from this kind of phenomena. And even there, it's not going to work. Uh, so it is a very democratizing technology and information empowers people and it's doing it everywhere in the world. And you see people in these developing nations, Libya, Egypt, where they're very sophisticated about the use of these technologies and these tools. And also the young people see uh, how the rest of the world shares knowledge and information and how they live and, uh, and how their societies are governed uh, compared to other places. And, uh, they've got very strong ideas of what what about what they want. And it's a very democratizing technology. And also, the tools of creativity are democratized. So, you know, uh, a couple of kids at Stanford can, mm-hmm. uh, with a late dorm, mm-hmm. uh, late night dorm challenge, created uh, Google. Right. And a uh, kid and his, uh, his friends uh, trying to, get a better way to meet other people uh, and for people to date. You put that uh, nicely, created, Ray. <laughs> created uh, Facebook. That's uh, a nice way to put it. Well, Ray, you still said, actually a major application of Facebook. Uh, maybe the single most important. In Fantastic Voyage, I think it was, that you said, uh, I want to live long enough to live forever. Um, do you want to- Yeah, that's actually the subtitle of Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough to Live Forever. Uh, as reference really to the idea of a, a bridge to a bridge to a bridge. So we don't have in our hands right now all the knowledge and tools uh, to live indefinitely, which I think is a proper expression of the goal because I can never come on your program and say, you know, I've done it. I've succeeded. I've lived forever. <laughs> we, well, we won't uh, be there for that. Maybe we will. I hope we can. Well, you can't. You, well, you can't. You got to stop living it, to be sure that you lived forever, which means you haven't lived forever. It's, so it's a bit well, of a conundrum. Never, yeah, it's never forever. But we'll get to a point where we can back ourselves up, and <laughs> even that. I mean, I've written philosophically about that. Even if you have back up a process, that doesn't mean it's uh, yeah going to live forever. I mean, try restoring now some word processing file you wrote in WordStar, right? And, and good luck. Uh, unless you, you know, maintain information, it doesn't live, and there's actually an important philosophical point there. But we will get... So we talk about a bridge to a bridge to a bridge. Bridge one is what you can do right now. That's actually a long discussion, but there's a lot you can do to slow down aging and disease processes than people realize. And most of these books are actually about that. But bridge two is the full flowering of this biotechnology revolution, which I've alluded to already because health and medicine was not an information technology. It was just hit or miss up until very recently. But now the cutting edge of it is to really understand the software biology and reprogram it just the way, I mean, this is reprogramming itself now. It's updating itself while we speak. I'm literally walking around with software that was evolved tens of thousands of years ago, in some cases millions of years ago. And it's not a metaphor. It is literally software. Your DNA. Strings of data, you know, 23,000 genes. Uh, and some of the old uh, ideas about it were naive. The one, one gene, one disease, one gene, one trait. But nonetheless, your genes do control your lives. And they then express themselves as information. And there's other levels of information processing with stem cells and so on. But we're learning how that information technology works. 
And we're also learning to modify it. RNA interference can turn genes off. New forms of gene therapy can add new genes. I'd like to tell my fat insulin receptor gene, you don't need to hold on to every calorie anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm confident I'll have food tomorrow. Next hunting season will be good. <laughs> don't worry. And uh, uh, that was actually tried in animal experiments. And these animals ate a lot and remained slim. And they got the benefits of being slim. And they lived 20% longer. And that's, that's being worked on by the Jocelyn Diabetes Center with some pharmaceutical companies. And that's just one of the 23,000 genes we'd like to reprogram. And there's other aspects of this. It's a long discussion. But we're ultimately going to be able to master and perfect uh, the very imperfect uh, processes of biology. Because when we evolved, it was actually in the interest of the human species for people not to live past their 20s. Because by that time, you brought up your kids and you're just using up the limited food and resources of the tribe. Yeah, just long enough so, to, to keep the species going. So life expectancy was 22 or something a thousand years ago, 37 and 1800. Uh, the, the full flowering of the biotechnology revolution is only 15, 20 years away. It's progressing exponentially, not linearly. A lot of people look at this and look at how long things took with the old paradigm of medicine and really fail to appreciate that that it, despite the fact that medicine was linear up until recently, because it was not an information technology, it's now going to progress in this exponential manner. And the, the golden age of biotechnology, that's what we call the second bridge, is only 15, 20 years away. The third bridge is the full-flowering of the nanotechnology revolution, where we can build blood cell-sized devices to keep us healthy from inside. That's at least a quintessential application. I used to call it the, the killer app, but that's not probably the right it's the the reverse description (laughs) uh for a health technology but uh if it sounds very futuristic to put uh, millions of little nanobots uh, in your bloodstream there are precursors of this there's dozens of animal experiments of putting blood cell size devices in the bloodstream one scientist cured type 1 diabetes in rats with a blood cell size device with seven nanometer pores lets insulin out in a controlled fashion blocks antibodies uh, so these are early experiments, but uh, the golden age of that is 20, 25 years away. Uh, that will bring us to a point where we actually can access who we are and capture the information. It's not a metaphor. It's also not a metaphor to say that there's information in my brain that represents my memories, my skills, my personality, and that is not backed up. And that might sound ridiculous, but we we would think it irresponsible not to back up the information you have on your computers, uh, yet we walk around without backing up our mind files. So oh, no, people I'm, will no, be... I'm scared. <laughs> oh, boy, you're right. Brain so, crash. <laughs> yeah. uh, will you, will you, you pour some, your, some brain? your brain? Will some you... of your brain is backed up. If you lose the portion that Parkinson's disease destroys, at least in the first 10 or 12 years, there's a, a, an implant uh-huh. actually put in the body and then connected into the brain, and it replaces the functionality of those, of those neurons. Uh, it's an early, fairly simple example, but uh, we, and it's not person specific, it's sort of species specific, but ultimately we will get to a point where we can capture this very person specific information that defines who you are and back it up. Now, if you were to just take that and create another person in another substrate or in an avatar in virtual reality, uh, you can make a strong philosophical argument that that's not me. But I think the real process is going to be one where we maintain the continuity of identity. And we're going to be introducing more and more non-biological intelligence. You know, once that's inside our brains, talk to a human person, it'll be a hybrid, a cyborg combination of Mm -hmm. biological and non-biological intelligence. The non-biological part, just like computers today, will also be out in the cloud. And so when you our thinking will be not only just inside our brains and not just in the biological and non-biological portion, but also out in the cloud. We'll have direct brain-to-brain communication. We'll be able to inhabit uh, very realistic virtual reality environments, incorporating all the senses. There's many other scenarios, but we're going to basically expand uh, who we are and back up all that information. Uh, just, I mean, that'll happen automatically because anything that's non-biological is backed up today. When we get to that point, uh, do we not lose, but do we change 
the meaning of identity. Uh, and I'm thinking about in an infinitely copyable internet, it is impossible to own a file because you make hundreds of copies of it in the course of using it. Do, do we run into that with our own identities? You know, once, once you've backed up your identity as a, as a store of information, that means it's copyable and infinitely copyable. Uh, and so your identity well, could spread out and, and encompass all of these different versions of you. I mean, you're, you're uh, alluding to a deep philosophical question which has been debated. Actually, you don't have the back. answer? <laughs> Well, I haven't finished my answer yet. Okay. Uh, it's been debated, uh, actually going back to the Platonic Dialogues, where they you know, imagined a scenario really not that different from this. And uh, Leibniz in the 19th century imagined that the brain actually was made up of little mechanisms. He didn't know about electronics. He talked, Monads, about, yeah. he talked about mechanical mechanisms, but actually they were computing mechanisms and then he imagined where's identity and where's consciousness. And, um, and we accept this very routinely. Uh, we give an identity to a copyable software entity. Uh, we can, in fact, have avatars that have a personality. and They're not at human levels yet, although some are getting actually fairly close you know, on the Loebner Turing test. And uh, or Take Watson. I mean, it's a software entity. It runs on certain hardware, but it has a certain personality. And we accept the fact that it's copyable. Uh, and we find that perplexing because we're so married to this idea of the software of our existence and our identity being married to one hardware substrate. And when that hardware crashes, the software disappears with it. And people imagine in the scenarios I talk about a loss of something essential, uh, but there's no loss. There's only actually a transcendence of limitations we've had. Uh, we still have a body. We'll still be able to love. In fact, we'll be much freer to love than we did before. Uh, we'll still have personalities. Uh, I don't believe consciousness or identity is substrate dependent. There are people walking around with computers in their bodies and connected into their brains already. Uh, we don't consider them less human. And I've actually talked to them, and they, they consider those, those computers to be part of themselves, by and large. Because you ask different people, you get different answers. But uh, I, I think we're going to get there gradually, and we'll get used to it. You know, things that seem startling even today, uh, once they happen, it's amazing how quickly just people accept it. Oh, that's just everyday reality. I wrote mm -hmm. about ebooks in the 1992 for a series of articles in the Library Journal. And people thought that was crazy. And, right. oh, well, maybe that'll happen a thousand years from now. And now that it's happened, it's, yeah, of course, not big a big deal. deal. Yeah. Uh, and generally, tech, when technology is introduced, first they're introduced, they don't really work very well. People say, oh, well, it's not really such a big deal because it doesn't really work. And then gradually, you know, it works better and better. And by the time it works well, it's really inexpensive and ubiquitous. And then people say, well, it's not such a big deal. It's been around for a long time. And uh, so these things may seem startling, but they're going to happen. They're going to creep up on us. We'll start putting technologies in our bodies and brains to keep us healthier, extend our memories. Uh, and it's going to happen bit by bit. Uh, I don't think technology is separate from human beings. I mean, we are the human machine civilization. We're the only species that transcends our limitations. In terms of biology, that started a long time ago. As I said, uh, life expectancy was 20,000 years ago. So we will accept this. Uh, you can do a series of mental experiments with the kinds of questions you were alluding to and come out with reasonable answers. I mean, I discuss these issues in Chapter 7 of Singularities Near. I have a new book which I'm writing uh, called How the Mind Works and How to Build One. And I actually call it, refer to it as the mind in the title, rather than the brain, because mm. a mind is a brain Plus. that's conscious and yeah. has an identity. Right. And, but I don't believe that's a sort of a mystical addition. It's not, there's not a duality there. It's, a, it's an emergent property of, of the complex hierarchical system that the human brain constitutes. Ray, you've made so many uh, accurate predictions uh, 
in your life. Are there any are any things that you thought that would happen that have just that you realize no that that ain't gonna happen? Well, I actually did an analysis. Uh, I uh, had 147 predictions in the age of spiritual machines for the year 2009. So it was a good idea to look at those. And yeah. then I also looked at some of the others that I've made over the last 25 years, including the ones in Age of Intelligent Machines, which I wrote in the late 1980s. The Age of Spiritual Machines I wrote in the late 90s. It came out in 99. Uh, for the, I wrote it in 97, 98. So it had these 147 predictions for 2009. Something like 86% were, were basically correct. So one that's wrong, uh, which ironically people uh, tell me how uh, praise me on is uh, <laughs> of course that uh, we would have uh, driverless cars, you know, driven by AI, uh, and in fact, you know, they do exist. Yeah, the you were wrong. Car, yeah. Well, it is wrong because. Uh, I looked carefully at the wording and it implied it would be pretty commonly mm. used and it's not commonly used. It's still certainly very experimental. And the, and the leaders of that field feel we're 10 years away from ubiquitous or common use. Uh, and that's beyond my threshold. If something was like a year off, I would call it essentially correct. But uh, if it's 10 years off, it's I, I rated it as wrong. Uh, although the technology is ahead of where most people have thought the Google cars have logged 140,000 miles of driving in cities and towns uh, without human drivers. There's a human in the car to take over, uh, but they don't need to. Uh, it's actually we're actually I think already at a point where they can do a better job than humans because that's not a very uh, difficult threshold. You said that once the uh, universe is saturated with intelligence. Uh, it will wake up, and that's God. Do you, you stand by that? Is that, is that a prediction? Uh, I mean, I think... Or is it Google? <laughs> is Google God? You know, uh, God? It's consistent with what I've said. God is a term which uh, people refer to different concepts. So... People ask, do you believe in God? Uh, and people say yes or no, but they're That's not... That's what you mean, of course, yeah. They're not necessarily talking about the same thing. Right. Uh, I like the definition where God is uh, the ultimate in creativity, intelligence, beauty, love. Actually, these are all the things at the very highest level, conceptual level in our neocortex. Uh, and I do believe, you know, those qualities exist in the world. And so if beauty and love and creativity is God, then I believe in those things. So I believe in God. Uh, and we will reach the highest expression of those when we've saturated the universe, turned it into what we call computronium, which is computation infused with all of the software of the human machine civilization, uh, with all the fantastic knowledge, which we've managed to then multiply double, you know, every year, starting from now till, say, 100 years from now, or hundreds of years from now, that'll be just a vast amount of, of beauty and love and creativity and music and art and science. And uh, so people imagine, gee, there's a certain amount to know. And once we know all that, what are we going to do? We're going to sit back and do nothing. Uh, human knowledge has been growing and expanding exponentially, too. And you can see it even in fields like music and art. You know, when I was a kid, there was classical music and pop music. And today there's a hundred different mm -hmm. genres. And so, I mean, the amount of knowledge we're creating is vast. The more knowledge we create, the more we actually discover that we don't know. So our circle of ignorance also expands exponentially. This, we're always going to be on that frontier of knowledge. That is the job of the human civilization. In that regard, actually, we're carrying out uh, the cutting edge of the job of evolution because evolution created our species and that we are now creating this this ex explosion of knowledge uh so i think that's about as godlike as we can uh, hope to become so you're an optimist well i've been accused of that <laughs> um and in some ways i'm optimistic i mean you do have to have an optimistic personality to be an inventor and an entrepreneur you sure do yeah uh 
you know, optimism is not just an idle prediction about the future, it's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you're more likely to have a positive outcome if you're optimistic than pessimistic. But I'm not a naive optimist, and I've actually written extensively about the downsides of these technologies. And technology is a double-edged sword. Fire cooked our meals and kept us warm thousands of years ago, but it was also, uh, you know, could be destructive accidentally or intentionally. And it's certainly true of today's tools. And we've seen plenty of that in the 20th century. 180 million people died in the wars of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And these new technologies are also very powerful. And around the time I was born, the human race, you know, got used to an existential risk that had never existed before. We had a technology where we could destroy in theory, and it wasn't so theoretical because I remember uh, these uh, drills in, in school where to get right. under our desks and, yeah, duck and cover. put our, uh, uh, our arms behind our head as if that was going to protect us from an atomic <laughs> explosion. We were optimists. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's, a that's the definition yeah. of optimism. So technology is a double-edged sword. I've written extensively about what the downsides are. Uh, in fact, a lot of the people who are very negative and considered pessimists, uh, like Bill McKibben, he's a friend of mine, and I, I respect him as an environmentalist, the first to write about global warming. Mm -hmm. uh, but he wrote a book called Enough, basically uh, translates uh, as uh, enough already. These new technologies have been great, but still uh, enough is enough. We got enough technology. And, and he's opposed to the continuation right. of GNR, genetics, nanotechnology, robotics, and AI. Uh, and he cites my books as, uh, you know, and quotes me extensively in terms of my descriptions of the downsides. Mm. And I think we agree on the downsides. We disagree on the prescription. I don't think relinquishment is the answer. The answer is uh, actually to create defenses. I don't think relinquishment would work. It would just drive these technologies underground where they'd be more dangerous. Right. Well, Europe uh, tried it uh, in the, you know, 1200s. Yeah, it was and, called the Dark before. Ages. Yeah. yeah, a lot of times it's referred to as the Dark Ages. You, you get rid of uh, knowledge and, and technology. It didn't work out so well. Exactly. And we still have a lot of, we have a moral imperative to continue. You know, we're, there's very encouraging things happening with cancer. We're going to tell the cancer patients that, no, we're mm -hmm. canceling all that because it's too dangerous. Uh, and it is dangerous. I mean, a bioterrorist could take those same tools and create a new bioweapon. Uh, the right answer to that is, of course, to have the right ethical standards for responsible scientists, which, you know, we have the Asilomar guidelines in biotech. Those have actually worked quite well. And then to have a rapid response system where when people do try to be destructive, we can detect that quickly and counteract it. I've worked with the Army on that problem in terms of biological viruses. Uh, there are answers. We've done a good job in that regard, for example, with software viruses. We have a technological immune system. It'll never be perfect, but it actually does a pretty good job. Uh, so it's a complex issue. I'm not uh, naive uh, about these issues I've written extensively about the dangers and I work, I've worked on uh, addressing them. And I, I think so, so the reason I communicate about these issues is we need to understand <coughs> the positive side that the, the major problems that we struggle with, availability of water and food and housing and, and poverty and disease, really the only thing that can address these major challenges uh, and the only thing that will provide the scale to address them is the exponentially growing information technologies. On the other hand, there are new dangers, and we need to be aware of those and work on those also. Uh, and really, it's to share that perspective with people that I communicate about it. Ray's website is uh, Kurzweil AI, and the AI stands for Accelerating Kurzweil, Yeah, KurzweilAI.net. Yep. And we have a, a newsletter. Uh which is very widely read. It's free. You can sign up by just putting your email address on the homepage. And uh, you can get a daily or a weekly version. It's actually remarkable with how many new things happen every day in these areas. Well, and I do want to tell people uh, that the movie Transcendent Man, which is the you know kind of documentary about uh, Ray's life and ideas, is uh, traveling around the world. In fact, it's going to be in San Francisco uh, next uh, it'll be in San Francisco in April. If you go to transcendentman.com, there's information about that screening. It's, 
it's a movie about me. It was made by Barry Ptolemy. Uh, Barry did a brilliant job, I think, of showing point and counterpoint and interweaving my life story. Um, and it's a beautifully made movie. You can buy it online, too. It's on, it's on iTunes. Right, it's on yeah. iTunes. It's been the second most popular documentary in the country. Oh, that's neat. Um, it's on Movies on Demand. Um, so I do recommend uh, people see that. It's a good introduction to these ideas. Did, you were writing a book on the uh, based or a movie on the singularities near is that did that come out? Uh, yeah, there's a movie that I that I made uh, yeah. based on the singularities near, and that'll be out uh, later this year. Oh, it's good. been doing it's been traveling the festival circuit and won some awards. And congratulations! I look forward to seeing that. Ray, it's been a pleasure talking to you uh, as always, and I have all your books, and uh, as you can see, they're well thumbed. <laughs> so, <laughs> I you know, and it, sometimes it reads like science fiction, uh, but it's so uh, you know solidly backed up by fact. It's um, it's it's pretty exciting. Oh, it was great to talk to you. Yeah. And, thanks for joining uh, us. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll meet again in a hundred years, but hopefully much sooner. I hope so. I look forward to that. Maybe our our uh, substrates will be different, but uh, <laughs> we we can continue on. Substrate's not important. It's yeah. a, you know, I got to take this substrate out of here. I got to get. Some you can't <laughs> judge a book by its substrate. That's right. Thank you, Ray. Ray Kurzweil. Thank you. My Ray. pleasure. Take care. Kurzweil AI dot net. And uh, uh, once again, uh, this has been such a. It's so fun to do this show because we get to meet so many really smart and interesting people. Um, I didn't really uh, begin the show with a list of Ray's accomplishments. There are so many, um, but maybe go see the movie would be a, a good idea. He. Um, He's an inventor, as you as you heard, and a futurist, and has some brilliant ideas. And if you're going to pick one book, I guess you know the age of spiritual machines and the age of intelligent machines is great, but the singularity is near is the is the is the one I, that I think makes the best, strongest case for what this future holds for us. It's fascinating. Yeah, and I then agree. I, and then for you know, if you want to live long enough to live forever, the Fantastic Voyage is a great book. He did that with uh, Terry Grossman, who's a f physician. Uh, and that's it for this edition of uh, our show. Once again, uh, if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, you have a chance to see Transcendent Man. Uh, it's coming uh, up on April, uh, let's get this right, 14th at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. And uh, there's video online uh, at transcendentman.com, but you can also get it on iTunes and elsewhere. And I feel bad because, you know, I, but I just... I didn't want to like kind of go through the litany, but I mean, he he created the synthesizer. First, he created the speech, the text to speech engine that Stevie Wonder used, and then he made a synthesizer. He got to know Stevie, made this amazing Kurzweil synthesizer. Um, he's just done so many interesting things. We'll have to have him time. back and say, okay, we we talked about the yeah, deep let's stuff. Let's talk about the let's talk about let's the talk past. about Stevie. The history, yeah, talk about Stevie. Uh, he in uh, was um, let's see. When he was a teenager, he created a, a pattern recognition program that analyzed the works of classical composers. This is in high school. And then synthesized its own song in the same style. And went on TV. Yeah. Which back then was a huge deal. He was on I've Got a Secret. He had, he had three channels. I wonder if I could... I bet you it's in the movie. I, yeah, I'm sure there's at least a clip or two of it. Yeah. It'd be fun to see Ray Kurzweil as a teenager on I've Got a Secret. Yeah. Showing off his synthesizer. Um, so really a brilliant guy. Um and, you know, there are a lot of people talked about his ideas in a lot of different ways. Yeah, here it is. Look at this. I found it. Um, but uh, I think it's food for thought and certainly um, something that we need to think about um, in, uh, you know, as we approach this time where the machines are, you know, no doubt about it, getting smarter. This is Ray Kurzweil. On, uh, I've got a secret. This goes back a few years. 1965. Uh, first of all, would you tell the folks your name and the size of the curtain that's moving in? Oh, I'm sorry. Your name, please. Okay. My name is Raymond Kurzweil, and I'm from Queens, New York. Queens, New York. Well, panel, Raymond and I just happened to have uh, brought along this little piano here, as you see. 17. And Raymond, in addition, also happens to have, uh, as the old saying goes, happens to have a piece of music with him. Uh, and before we show the audience what his uh, secret is, uh, we have just a few seconds for Raymond to play this piece of music. Raymond, the piano's all yours. Thank you. This is going to completely mislead them because it's not. 
very nicely played, and now uh, your performance, of course, leads into your secret, so if you'll whisper it to me, we'll let everybody Steve at home Allen. know what's up. Ryan Seacrest of its day, designed and built an uh, electronic what? computer. Wow. That certainly deserves applause, but... Uh, <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. I'm sure we'll have another great guest on Triangulation. Bye-bye.